When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Said I, what will be, will be. When I grew up and fell in That's Doris Day singing what was originally called Whatever Will Be, but that came to be known as K. Sarah Sarah. Although reportedly Doris didn't like the song at first and didn't want to do it. It made it to number two on the Billboard charts and became her signature song. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and what does all this have to do with Alfred Hitchcock? Well, say it's June 24, 1956, and you just finished watching Momentum, the last episode of the first season of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Where, then, are you going to get your hitch fix before the second season starts in September? Well, there's always the reruns, and thanks to Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wigstrom in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, we know what they were. What will be, will be. They're not necessarily what I would have chosen. They're not even what the producers chose. As Martin and Patrick point out, most likely the network made the decisions. Anyway, here they are. July 1st, The Long Shot. July 8th, You Got to Have Luck. July 15th, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. July 22nd, A Bullet for Baldwin. July 29th, The Babysitter. August 5th, Portrait of Jocelyn, August 12th, Who Done It, August 19th, Premonition, August 26th, The Gentleman from America, September 2nd, The Case of Mr. Pelham, September 9th, Back for Christmas, September 16th, Never Again, and September 23rd, The Creeper. So Hitchcock stays on all through the summer. But if these are already episodes you've seen, then what else do you do? Well, there's that new movie out, released in New York City on May 16th, with a familiar-sounding name. It's Alfred Hitchcock's VistaVision production of The Man Who Knew Too Much, starring James Stewart and Doris Day, and featuring that song that reached number two on the Billboard charts. Now, if you're a student of Hitchcock, you know that he previously directed The Man Who Knew Too Much, starring Leslie Banks, Edna Best, Nova Pilbeam, and Peter Laurie when he was still working in England back in 1934. So why did he decide to make it again? Well, John Russell Taylor, in his biography Hitch, says exactly why Hitch, who had always made a point of not repeating himself, wanted to remake The Man Who Knew Too Much, remains a mystery. Sometimes he shrugs it off by saying that he wanted a new vehicle for James Stewart quickly, and the property was there lying to hand, so he used it. He also said at the time that the original version had never been shown in America, or hardly, which is, as it happens, quite untrue. 
We know that he had seriously considered a remake some years previously, so this was not a sudden decision. That last seems to be something that everyone can agree upon. Here's Pat Hitchcock from The Making of the Man Who Knew Too Much off the Man Who Knew Too Much DVD. My father discussed doing a remake of it in the United States in 1941, but he set the project aside until 1956. Here's Donald Spoto from The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock's agents had purchased from David O. Selznick the rights to The Man Who Knew Too Much, a film the director had for a long time wanted to refine and remake. During the Selznick period, Hitchcock and John Houseman had considered reworking the story to give it an American setting, but they could not endow the characters with much life. The political angle in the story, as Hitchcock remembered, kept cluttering the narrative. In a memorandum dated December 30, 1941, John Houseman reported to Selznick on a projected remake. The new version was to begin in Sun Valley, Idaho, instead of the original setting in Switzerland, move to a South American setting in a carnival background, then return to New York. The center of the plot was a scheme to kill the president of Brazil in order to jeopardize American relations. A gala at the Metropolitan Opera was to replace the climax at the Albert Hall, and the hideout of the spies would be in a Victorian mansion in Fort Lee, just across the Hudson River in New Jersey. And here's Patrick McGilligan in Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, and he thinks he knows the reason for the remake. Almost from his initial trip to Hollywood, he had been thinking about Americanizing the man who knew too much, first describing the North African bizarre scene with the smudge coming off the face of a murdered secret agent in his New Yorker profile in 1938. Then, as early as 1940, his second year in Hollywood, Hitchcock had pitched the idea to David O. Selznick, who had briefly encouraged it. The remake was always linked to Hitchcock's friendship with Angus MacPhail, who had been pivotally involved in the original. Always a genial alcoholic, he gradually drank himself into a physical and financial state from which he seemed unable to rebound. He wrote to Hitchcock from Nice in February 1953, explaining that he was neurasthenic in debt and unable to pay his hotel bill. Neurasthenia is, according to Merriam-Webster, a condition that is characterized especially by physical and mental exhaustion, usually with accompanying symptoms such as headache and irritability is of unknown cause, but is often associated with depression or emotional stress, and is sometimes considered similar to or identical with chronic fatigue syndrome. Hitchcock immediately wired some money and later subscribed to an informal group of MacPhail friends who paid his back taxes so he could return to England, and then furnished an allowance to keep him afloat. To employ MacPhail and help rehabilitate him was part of what motivated Hitchcock to press forward with the remake. Not only could MacPhail help update the script, he could obtain an American screen credit that would legitimize his membership in the Screenwriters Guild, whose health and insurance benefits could ease his future financial burdens. But if that was the plan, it was thwarted, because he brought in John Michael Hayes again to do the screenplay. Hayes had already written The Trouble with Harry to catch a thief and rear window for him. And Hayes felt that he deserved sole screenwriting credit. Donald Spoto, in The Dark Side of Genius, quotes Hayes. Hitchcock had brought in his old friend Angus MacPhail as a technical advisor on The Man Who Knew Too Much while we were shooting in London. MacPhail had been with British intelligence, and Hitchcock thought he could contribute something to the business about the Arab and French spies. 
But poor Angus MacPhail was a dying alcoholic, and all he could do was sit there, shaking with his disease. I think that Hitchcock might have been trying to do MacPhail a favor by giving him work, since they had known each other years earlier. But the man really did no work on the script, so that when I got back to Hollywood and Paramount gave me the news that Hitchcock was insisting on having MacPhail's name appear on the screenplay credit with mine, I was shocked. Hitchcock told me that MacPhail's name would stay on it, and I said I would submit the matter to arbitration with the Writers Guild. He told me that if I did that, he would never speak to me again, and that I would never work with him again. But to me, this was a matter of principle, and even of my career, which Hitchcock was not at all anxious about. The Guild did settle the matter. They read the drafts of the screenplay, and considered all the notes and memoranda, and they decided that it was indeed entirely all my work, and MacPhail's name came off. And then I knew my days with Alfred Hitchcock were numbered. It was, in fact, the last film he wrote with Alfred Hitchcock. In a footnote, Donald Spoto quotes associate producer Herbert Coleman, who said of Angus MacPhail, It was very sad. Often we just had to cart him off from his apartment to a hospital. He wasn't capable of much. But Patrick McGilligan, in his biography, states that Angus MacPhail, in his notes from January and February 1955, indicated that the shaping of the remake was influenced by the crisis in Hungary. Hungarian Prime Minister Imre Nagy, who rose to power in 1953, replacing a Stalinist, was behaving in unexpectedly liberal fashion, introducing nationalist policies that alarmed his Soviet sponsors. Out of this, Hitchcock and MacPhail developed the idea that a Nagy-type prime minister might be targeted for death by the Russians during a trip to London, with the deed manipulated to look as though it had been ordered by the Americans. Once again, the assassination attempt would occur during a symphony performance at the Albert Hall, as it was in the original film. Once again, it would be foiled by the mother's scream, a sequence from the original that Hitchcock felt he couldn't improve upon. In February, the two friends hammered out other key plot points. This included the new opening in Marrakesh, where on a bus, the McKenna's son, eight-year-old Hank, accidentally yanks off a Muslim woman's veil, nearly provoking a riot among the passengers. The riot is forestalled by a mysterious stranger, Louis Bernard, a secret agent who has mistaken the McKenna's for the British communist couple he is trying to trace. As early as February, Hitchcock anticipated that Doris Day would be playing Joe McKenna, Stewart's wife, and already the notion had emerged to make Joe a retired, world-famous vocalist. MacPhail actually wrote the first version of the scene that replaced the shootout in the original, with Joe rescuing Hank in the implicitly Soviet bloc embassy by singing a song she has taught him. Hank reveals his hiding place by whistling the melody back in reply, an idea Hitchcock and MacPhail consciously borrowed from a Richard the Lionheart legend. Together, Hitchcock and MacPhail also came up with an alternative to the quasi-comic sequence in the original where Leslie Banks and Hugh Wakefield visit a sinister dentist looking for clues and wind up at a sun worshiper's temple, a blind for the gang's hideout. They sketched out a scene that would send Ben McKenna in search of Ambrose Chapel, a name whispered by the dying Louis Bernard. Alone and paranoid on London streets, Ben hears the sound of menacing footsteps, but it's a false alarm. And so is Ambrose Chapel, who turns out to be a taxidermist without the slightest inkling of spies. Meanwhile, an agitated Joe is stuck in a hotel room with old show business cronies when she suddenly realizes that Ambrose Chapel is a London church where the British couple holding her boy hostage are posing as clergy, and off she rushes to the rescue. 
All this was in the greenhouse by the time John Michael Hayes, who had been kept busy on another Paramount project, joined the script in late February. Hayes stated in later interviews that he never even saw the original film. However, to bring Hayes up to speed on the story, reported film scholar Bill Crone, Hitchcock rented a 16mm copy of The First Man Who Knew Too Much and screened it for him. Whether or not Hayes ever saw the original, Hitchcock certainly sat him down for one of his patented walkthroughs, spieling out the new Americanized version, including all the ideas he and McPhail had incorporated so far. Hayes claimed in later interviews that he never read anything McPhail had written down, one of the reasons he believed McPhail never did any writing. It was a misunderstanding that would fester over time. So if that version is correct, then it's understandable that Hitchcock was very angry at Hayes for going to the Writers Guild about the screen credit. Now somewhere in all of that, it did say that very early on, Hitchcock anticipated casting Doris Day as James Stewart's wife in the film. But then, in typical Hitchcock fashion, he said virtually nothing to her through all the shooting in Marrakesh and London. Donald Spoto quotes her in The Dark Side of Genius. He never said anything to me, before or during or after a scene, and so I thought I was displeasing him, and I was crushed. We simply shot the scenes, and that was that. Everything was very civilized and polite and businesslike, but I was convinced that I must have been the worst actress he'd ever had. He just never said anything to me, and I had the impression that he felt saddled with an actress he didn't want. I told my husband it was obvious I should try to get out of the picture before we did most of the interiors back in California. And finally, I had to arrange a personal meeting with Mr. Hitchcock. I told him I knew I wasn't pleasing him and that if he wanted to replace me with someone else, he could. He was astonished. He said it was quite the reverse, that he thought I was just doing everything right and that if I hadn't been doing everything right, he would have told me. Then he said he was more frightened of life, of rejection, of relationships than anyone. He told me he was afraid to walk across the Paramount lot to the commissary because he was so afraid of people. I remember feeling so sorry for him when he told me this. And from that point, I felt more relaxed about working for him. One of the interior scenes they shot back in California has Jimmy Stewart, who plays a doctor, forcing his wife, Doris Day, to take a sedative before he tells her that their son has been kidnapped. I don't know how this played back in 1956 but I think it's a pretty disturbing example of wife abuse today. Donald Spoto calls Doris Day's performance flawless, particularly in this scene, which he says is certainly one of the clearest examples of controlled hysteria recorded on film. Just a minute. Wait a minute. Just a minute. Just a minute. I want you to take these. They'll relax you. Relax me? I'm so relaxed, I'm tired. I think maybe you need them. These are for you, Joe. Come on. Come on, I'm the doctor. Here. Ben. Now, Joe, you know what happens when you get excited and nervous. Now, here, do me a favor. Six months ago, you told me I took too many pills. Six months ago, you weren't a witness to a murder. Now, you've been excited. You've been talking a blue streak. You've been walking around in circles. Well, I and... haven't. Joe, Joe, I'm, I make my living knowing when and how to administer medicine. Now, I know you'll feel better if you take these. Now, why fight me on this? All right, you don't think you will feel better. I'll make a deal with you. I will make a deal. What is this? Well, there's something about this Louis Bernard and the police station and this whole spy business I haven't told you yet. What? Here's the price of curiosity. What is it? Come on, come on. There's one way of finding out. All right, Dr. McKenna. I'm now relaxed and listening. Well... 
Now, there's been something strange about this whole thing from the very beginning. Now, it wasn't any accident that Louis Bernard came up to us and helped us on the bus. Started up a conversation. You were right about him. You see there? I know, I know. That's what I said. You were right about him. He was strange. Yes, I know all that. Well, what were you going to tell me? Well, he started to talk to us. Yeah. And the reason he started to talk to us was because he was on the lookout for a suspicious married couple. There's nothing very suspicious looking about us, is there? No, because he was wrong. It was a different married couple. Oh. And he was killed before he found them? No, he found them. He found them all right. It was in the restaurant where we had dinner last night. And that's one of the reasons he was killed. You'll be telling me next it's Mr. and Mrs. Drayton. That's who it was, Joe. And if this is your idea of a joke, it's not a very funny one. I'll lie down. Now listen to me, Joe. Now listen to me very carefully. Now that phone call at the police station, that wasn't the concierge at the hotel. That was a man with a foreign voice, and he told me if I mentioned one single word of what Louis Bernard told me in the marketplace that something would happen to Hank. Why? They've taken him away. Mrs. Drayton brought him back to the hotel. They're, Mrs. They're Drayton downstairs. never got back to the hotel. Neither did Hank. But Mr. Drayton Mr. should... Listen, Joe. Mr. Mr. Drayton checked out of the hotel 40 minutes ago. Now, come on, Joe. Now, now sit down. Damn you! You gave me sense! Sit down. Go. Why didn't you tell me? I wasn't sure until Joe. now. You, you did! Please. You did! Joe, please. 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 Go, please. Go, 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 Now, you can probably put the puzzle together from the jigsaw pieces I've been stirring about so far, but here is a concise and precise description of the plot from Peter Aykroyd in Alfred Hitchcock, A Brief Life. The story was of a middle-class couple with a young son who witnessed the assassination of an agent in a foreign country. The assassins then kidnap their child to prevent them from revealing what they know, and when the setting changes to London, a series of bizarre confrontations ends with a climactic scene in the Albert Hall and an equally dramatic reunion of parents and child. Or as Jimmy Stewart puts it in a trailer for the film, I play the part of an American doctor. Doris Day is my wife. And the story is about our trip abroad that started out as a holiday and ended up as a nightmare. So let's get to that climactic scene in the Albert Hall. But first, here's a nice quote from Pat Hitchcock about filming the assassination of the foreign agent who has darkened his skin in his disguise. When Louis Bernard is murdered, my father wanted the paint on his face to come off on Jimmy Stewart's hands. They made many tests, but the makeup just would not come off. So finally, Daniel Gelin, who portrayed the victim, came up with a great idea. He said, Jimmy Stewart should have white powder on his hands, and that's how they did it. And it looks very convincing. Okay, let's get to that Albert Hall sequence. Here's Stephen C. Smith, author of A Heart at Fire Center, 
The Life and Music of Bernard Herrmann from the making of the Man Who Knew Too Much featurette. More than any of the other Herman Hitchcock collaborations, music is almost a character in The Man Who Knew Too Much. It's very important. It's right there in the opening titles, letting us know that music is going to be key to this story. And naturally, that was a wonderful opportunity for Bernard Herrmann because he loved projects when music was featured very prominently. The original work was the Storm Clouds Cantata, written by an Australian-born composer named Arthur Benjamin. Hitchcock gave Herman the opportunity, if he wished, to write a new concert work for the climax of the film set at the Albert Hall. And uh, it, it was a wonderful showpiece for a composer. I think 99 out of 100 composers would have jumped at the chance to write something new for this. But Bernard Herrmann so admired the music that had been written by Arthur Benjamin for the earlier 1934 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much that he chose to keep that music. He said that he didn't think anyone could write anything better than what Benjamin had done. In the original film of The Man Who Knew Too Much, we don't really see the conductor. He isn't a, a character, if you will. And when Hitchcock reimagined the sequence for the remake, he wanted to make the conductor more featured in the sequence. Well, then the question was, well, who do we hire to be the conductor? This choice was finally made, and I'm guessing it was, it was ultimately Hitchcock's decision to use Bernard Herrmann, the man who was writing the score for the movie. So it becomes almost an in-joke that we have the, the composer of the dramatic score who is appearing as himself conducting the London Symphony, and uh, he's featured rather prominently in the sequence. In fact, if you don't recognize Bernard Herrmann, Hitchcock helps by showing the taxi carrying Doris Day pulling up at the Albert Hall right next to a big poster that says Conductor Bernard Herrmann. Now, the whole point is that an assassin has been sent to kill a dignitary at the Albert Hall, and he has been told to wait until the cymbal crash in the symphony before firing his shot. And now for the most important part. What is it? A record of the delightful piece they're going to play this evening. Music's less in your line than marksmanship. Now, if you listen, I'm going to play you the exact moment at which you can shoot. So listen carefully. Once more, listen for the crash of the cymbals. You see, at such a moment, your shot will never be heard. Here's Pat Hitchcock again. The idea to have the cymbals play such an interesting role in the story was inspired by a comic strip that showed a little man known as the One Note Man in his daily routine, getting up in the morning, going to work, doing a single note with the cymbals, and going back home. Or, if you can stand it, here is Hitchcock's drawn-out, shaggy dog-like description of that comic strip to Francois Truffaut. The symbol clash idea. L'idée du... the symbol. Oui. Came from an English cartoon. 
Il m'est venu d'un comic strip animé. anglais, dessin animé anglais. Dessin animé ou d'un comic sur journal uh, A comic strip in a newspaper or on an animated cartoon No, a, 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 a cartoon that cartoon. would appear in a magazine like Punch or a cartoon, one of uh, un, ca, un cartoon, un dessin animé qui apparaissait dans un magazine comme Punch. Pas un dessin animé alors, un dessin. Un dessin. This was about a four-page cartoon. C'était un dessin de quatre pages, une série de petits dessins. Montrant un homme being awakened by his alarm clock étant réveillé par son réveil à domicile. He gets up, il se réveille. Goes into the bathroom, va à la salle de bain. He gargles, il se gargarise. He shakes, he, he, uh, shaves, il se rase. He takes a shower, prend une douche. He gets dressed. Sabi. goes down. He has his breakfast. All in each separate little drawing. Tout ça dans les petits dessins séparés. He finally goes out into the hallway. Finalement, il sort dans le le couloir. Puts on his hat and son chapeau et son manteau. And picks up a small patent leather instrument case. Un petit instrument, un petit étui instrument en 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 cuir verni. Il marche dans la rue de sa, de, de sa maison. Gets on a bus, à bord d'un un autobus. Then by train, ensuite un train. Eventually arrives in the city, éventuellement, il arrive à la ville. Et il arrive à la Albert Hall. Goes in the musicians entrance. Il, il entre par l'entrée des musiciens. <coughs> and takes off his hat. En laissant chapeau, son manteau. He takes a small woodwind instrument. Il prend un petit instrument de, de flûte. Out of the case. De, de, de l'étui. And uh, tries it. Et other men are Les autres. Hommes également font une petite répétition. Maintenant, en troupe, ils s'avancent vers le podium, tous. Il s'assied à sa place, là. Ils sont tous en train de s'accorder de tous les côtés. Finalement, le conducteur s'amène. Donne le signal. Est assis là avec son petit instrument sur ses genoux. Et il a l'étagère à musique devant lui. Et la grande symphonie débute. Et le petit homme est là, il attend. Il tourne les pages. Continue à tourner les pages. Finalement, il s'assied, il se retrouve dans sa chaise. Il saisit son instrument. Il continue à surveiller. S'apprête. Le conducteur fait un mouvement et finalement, le point du. Et il fait bloop. Et ensuite, il s'affaisse. Il ramasse son instrument quand il se ressaisit. Et sur un point des pieds, il sort. C'est tout ce qu'il a à faire. 
goes back into the room, puts on his hat and his coat. He puts on his hat and his coat. He goes upstairs to bed, undresses, goes in the bathroom, gargles, puts on his pajamas, goes to bed, turns the light off. <laughs> It's something, of course, which has often been done in animated uh, cartoons. It was called The One Note Man. Yeah. It was done again uh, by Walt Disney. Out of that, I got the idea for the symbols. In the book, Hitchcock Truffaut, Truffaut notes that in the original version of the film, the symbolist's face isn't shown. But he says, I noticed this omission was corrected in the remake. By the way, the musician looks a little like you. Hitch says, just a coincidence. And Francois says, he's completely impassive. And Hitch says, well, that passivity was extremely important, since the man is unaware that he is the instrument of death. He doesn't know it, but in fact, he's the real killer. Fortunately, though, no one is the real killer, because Doris Day's scream at just the right moment distracts the assassin enough so that he only wounds his target. Which film is better? Here's Pat Hitchcock again. Although I think my father was proud of his original version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, he once told French filmmaker Francois Truffaut that the first film was done by an amateur and the remake by a professional. Patrick McGilligan quotes Hitchcock saying, I think actually the difference would be in the original The Man Who Knew Too Much, I wasn't audience conscious, whereas in the second one, I was. And John Russell Taylor says that the mature Hitch is more at ease with emotion, more eager to explore atmosphere, psychology, and at times the darker areas of neurotic and obsessive behavior, which he had skimmed over before. So does all that mean it's better? Donald Spoto certainly thinks so. In his The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, he says that The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1956, is certainly one of Hitchcock's dozen best films. And he notes that the major predicament is not really the political assassination or even the safety of the kidnapped child. Rather, the problem posed is the relationship between Joe and Ben and the delicate state of her emotional health. This average American family is on extended holiday following Dr. McKenna's attendance at a medical convention in Paris. This is a family wanting excitement, a family bored with the status quo their yearning for excitement will be amply satisfied. An interruption in an unexciting trip has occurred, as the McKenna's hoped. The whole film, in fact, is a series of interruptions in their lives. These interruptions are thematically significant in the film and exteriorize the irrationality of a hostile world. The chief excitement the McKenna's will experience is the possibility of their dissolution as a family. 
When are we going to have another child? You ought to know, doctor. You have all the answers, Joe says teasingly to her husband. Her scream at Albert Hall may be a mother's cry at the time of delivery. It is at least a liberating cry of anguish and a triumph over death. The process by which the McKennas find and retrieve their child is a second birth for a tired family. And that Albert Hall sequence, according to Spoto, is one of the most astonishingly beautiful and successful suspense episodes in the history of the medium. So that cinches it, doesn't it? The second version is better, except Robert A. Harris and Michael S. Lasky in the films of Alfred Hitchcock say, when both versions are compared, most people find that while the later version holds up, the earlier one, because of its compactness, is more exciting. And Peter Aykroyd in Alfred Hitchcock, A Brief Life says, the American product is more technically assured and more carefully executed, while the English version is funnier, faster, and lighter. And Patrick McGilligan in Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light says, the world of Hitchcock fans can be divided into people who prefer the original, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and those who find the remake superior. The former may be the majority, but the latter make up a noisy faction. And if that's so, then I'm in the majority. Now, I may be in the majority in the preferences for the man who knew too much, but I suspect I'm not in my view of Wet Saturday, which is the real reason we're here, isn't it? Or at least it was, until my look at the man who knew too much took on a life of its own. There is plenty to say about Wet Saturday, so I think the best thing to do is to cut it off here and let this segment stand on its own. I'll be back in a week or two, at most, I promise, with the start of the second season. The Man Who Knew Too Much, including the making of The Man Who Knew Too Much bonus feature, The Dark Side of Genius by Donald Spoto, Alfred Hitchcock, A Brief Life by Peter Aykroyd, and Doris Day's Greatest Hits, featuring Que Sera Sera, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Hitchcock Truffaut segment is available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, for sure, episode 40, Wet Saturday, starring Sir Cedric Hardwick and John Williams. Good night.